0: My name is Eric Kunley and this is Unstructured. Unstructured is a chat with people who are changing the world around them through teaching, creating, or just living as an example. And when meeting folks who can learn from each other, be inspired, and maybe even make a new friend together. Okay, hello all. Welcome back to the Unstructured podcast. I'm super excited. Today I have... Tim Lucho Wagoner. What do you prefer going by Lucho or Tim? It doesn't matter.
1: Um, Lucho came from a past name I had. Well, I used to be Luchinski, Um in this. I was training with the, if you want to hear it, I was training Absolutely. with this Australian guy who was a tour de France writer for Festina back in the early two thousands. And he and I used to train a lot together and he started calling me Lucho. My last name was Luchinsky and it, okay. and it just popped out one day. Like, <laughs> what is that? It goes, Lucho, that's what I'm going to call you. And it just took, it just, I ended up basically becoming Lucho. Um, but I had my name changed when my first son was born back to um, my original Wagner name.
0: Well, that's cool. Yeah. So it's sort but of it
1: a. It doesn't matter what you call me Tim, Lucho,
0: whatever. So it's sort of an inside um, baseball nickname.
1: It started that way, yeah. But now I, I it, uh, the, the tremendous number of people who who know Lujo don't know what my real name is, I don't think.
0: <laughs> well, it seems to be a theme because my previous guest had the nickname of Toto, as in Hunter yeah. Toto Mott's, except that name is no longer due to Brian Callen um, destroying his masculinity in a riff.
1: <laughs> How does that destroy the name Toto? Because um, Toto to not a masculine name to begin with.
0: <laughs> and no, it's not. <laughs> and that Sorry. was kind of the point that uh, Brian <laughs> okay. um, thoroughly, thoroughly um, addressed. It is okay. a, a very hilarious moment. Got it. I want to listen to that. Definitely. It should be hopefully tagged into the first episode. Now, with you, normally. In podcasts, you have such a storied, amazing athletic background that I could probably be reading off for five or ten minutes your career highlights. I'd much rather travel with you, though, through your career and learn about you and how you felt and what you did, because it's astounding, the achievements that most normal uh, mortals like us (laughs) can't even imagine. Yeah.
1: I don't know if I can remember all of it. I, I, I tend to bounce around the highlights, which spans. Well, you're from Kansas, right? Yes, um, correct. A little town of 450 people in a really small, northwest Kansas. It's uh, eight miles from the Nebraska border. A uh, mm-hmm. little town called okay. Almina. There you go. Uh,
0: is it off of so 70? You know,
1: no. What, no. Do you know where Hayes is?
0: Uh, It's been a while. I lived in Manhattan, Kansas for a while, but that's east.
1: Okay. Yeah, I've lived there too. But you, if you go, oh, really? if you're coming from Manhattan and you're driving I-70 West, mm-hmm. take a right at Hayes and drive 90 miles and you'll hit my town. Okay. okay. So there's nothing. When Growing up, the, the nearest movie theater was Hayes. I was 90 miles away. So we didn't have a radio station. We had one radio station. It was country music um, and very, very rural. Pig farming. Grew up pig farming and working for other ranchers and and farmers. Growing up all of my whole life, so. So
0: you like space?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's no question about that. <laughs> I, I can't handle traffic. I can't handle stoplights. Stoplights just irk me more than anything in the world. Um, yeah,
0: <laughs> but so my now-
1: favorite. One of my favorite places I've ever lived is Seattle. Really? Ironically. Yeah. I My my girlfriend at the time, who eventually became my wife, moved there. And I lived in downtown skyscrapers all around Seattle, and I loved it. But Seattle's a, a pretty unique town. Um, anyway, yeah. So I, I started running when I was 11, and I wasn't a runner. I I was asked if I – they needed people to participate in the, the Junior Olympics in – in Kansas, and so I went. Um, had to buy shorts to do it, and it didn't Whoa. have any running shorts. I didn't use running shoes; I had just tennis shoes. But I won the mile.
0: Um, Hold on, that's so, quite a jump. Let's back up a little bit. You went uh-huh. from nothing to the Junior Olympics. That's not like saying, "Oh, I went to elementary school running." You went well, straight invitation. to invitation.
1: Yeah, they just needed people to fill spots, so they got me in, and I ran the mile, and I and I won. Um, and I was like, That's, this is pretty cool. <laughs> and then once I went into junior high, um, then I I started to run a little bit more. So okay, the so football you... was bigger there than anything.
0: Ah, uh, did you play?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I got a scholarship to university for football. All-state defensive back twice. Um, <laughs> I was I was a free safety and I was fast and I was just dumb enough where I would did tackle anybody i was fearless like stupid fearless i remember two concussions vaguely. or yeah vaguely um (laughs) but yeah i was i was a put my head down and stick guys um one of the top tacklers in the state
2: um
1: yeah (laughs) that was my thing and i was i was like 180 pounds i was a big dude for but you're not super
0: tall right or what is your height okay okay that's pretty solid
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, for a fast guy, you know, oh, and yeah. for high school, um, but I was also, you know, multiple state champion in track and field,
0: um, which disciplines
1: I was two mile, but basically w- small town, you know, small track teams. And we won state, we won state track and field three times when I was in high school. So you did everything. You did two mile, one mile, 804 by four is what I did. Um, yeah, I ran 204 in the 800 meters when I was 14. Wow. That was pretty young. <laughs> um, yeah, I didn't get my 400 down. I got 52 in the 400, which was never stellar. But, it, uh, you know, the mile and two mile kill that. Um, and then um, I had a scholarship to junior college for track and field. And I took that because it was really close to home. Um, I'd never left Kansas, so stayed close to home, um, went to junior college, made all American in the 1000 indoor, which to this day, I can remember that race very, very distinctly, which I can't remember all my races. I can't remember. I can remember maybe 15 minutes of the Leadville 100, <laughs> but I remember okay. every second of that thousand indoors because I PR in the 800. Yeah. <laughs> we went through the 800 and I, it was my personal best and we still had 200 to go and,
0: and that hurt. That had to oh, hurt.
1: It was out of your mind. It was out of my mind and I was strong enough where I wasn't physically breaking down and we can talk about that in a little bit, but
0: no, know, no, I, I
1: physically I was so fit and, and I was able to continue to push myself without actually needing to slow down. And it, it was, it was very painful.
0: Could it be argued um, that that short distance is actually more painful than, let's say, later in a marathon? thousand percent.
1: So, I mean, I, you probably know that I'm training right now for Masters track and field in the 400 meters.
0: Yep, um, you were going from, what, was it 100 miles to 100 meters for a bit?
1: Yeah. So I went, I, my, I did 100 My last race in 2012 was 100 miles, and I took four years off. And then my first race back from that was 100 meters. Which is and awesome. then, which I did just as a joke, I'm like, I just wanted to say, I just wanted to say what I just said, you know, I went from a mm-hmm. hundred miles to a hundred meters, but then um the four hundred meters was my focus last year, and i'll I will say, and i've said this before on my other podcast that that racing a five k is mm-hmm. considerably harder than racing a hundred, not mostly because of performance, where you know, anybody can finish a hundred meter or hundred miles, but very few people can run fourteen flat for five k. So that makes it you know, exponentially more difficult to achieve. Um, but also the pain—it's—it's it's very brief and very intense. It'd be the difference between putting your hand on a hot stove versus mm-hmm. your legs hurt after a workout. You know, they're—they're they're right. both painful. One is excruciating. Um, and the other is, is just this dull ache,
0: right? one is um, super sharp and the other is a more of a throbbing, dull constant.
1: It is. And it it also sneaks up on you. Like it's very gradual with a hundred miles. You don't ever notice the pain begin where in the 400 meters you go through 200 feeling really good. And within 50 meters, you're in agony. It's putting your hand on a hot stove. You go from feeling pretty good to all of a sudden you want to cry. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I explore that and I embrace it completely. But so I I did the thousand, um, all American, all American in the outdoor 1500, and then got a scholarship to the university of Arkansas. Um, four year division one, big time school. I went there, uh, two weeks before, um, school started, and I was living in my car i didn 't have any money, and the the dorms weren 't open yet, and so I slept in my my car and in August in, in Arkansas. Lovely. it
2: was
1: It was pretty miserable, um, but I trained with the team and i I remember getting my ass handed to me by the by the B team girls <laughs> back there running with them because i didn 't train over the summers i didn't know i didn't know you were supposed to do that. yeah, I sure. was running thirty miles a week all through high school, and I thought that 's what you did get there. And, you know, here's these, these freshman girls who are, have been running 80 miles a week and they're just blazing fast and they were just kicking my ass. And I, I quit. I walked up, walked up to the coach and I said, I'm done. I'm not going to run for you. And so I got in my car, bought a pack of cigarettes, believe it or oh, not, damn. and drove back to Kansas with my tail between my legs. Um, and then that started, that kicked off a, a uh, 5 year travel stint where i bought a one way ticket to guyana south america um on a whim hmm. tickets were cheap they spoke english i didn't speak a second language and the exchange rate was insane <laughs> it was their economy was trash and yeah i went there with $1000 us and was able to do what, literally whatever you want <laughs> <laughs> so I, I did that, had fun. Um, and then my sister at the time was starting a hospice in the U.S. Virgin Islands. And so I went to visit her and ended up coming home just to make a little bit of money. And then I flew right back and ended up living there
0: for four years. You said hospice is in? Um... AIDS hospice, specifically,
1: I mean, AIDS was their, their uh, biggest problem, percent of okay. the population.
0: AIDS, Ugh, at the time terrible, uh, terrible. I know it, Haiti had was, terrible time.
1: It was really bad. Um, and so I stayed there for four years, smoked a pack a day, and just got drunk all the time, partied. Yeah,
0: let's let's yeah. visit that a little. I mean, that, it, <laughs> it's easy to throw things down, but um, yeah. I mean, you went from being pretty cut all American, I guess. Um, I don't know the right term, but. Very healthy to almost not. I mean, was that because you got beaten by the females or, or you were humiliated in some way? I've Have never you...
1: looked at it that deeply. Um, I suspect that there's something there if you wanted to dig at it. But um I think I was just flying by the seat of my pants and having fun. That was cool. that was the main thing. And then also the same the same thing that made me and makes me a good athlete is the exact same thing that caused me to drink too much.
0: They're identical things. You don't have a halfway (laughs) switch. I I kind of see too. the, um, I, I can relate your small town. Um, I grew up on, uh, 10 acres in the middle of desert, um, northeast, northwest of Tucson. And so I just died to go anywhere other Mm -hmm. than my lonely existence. So I don't know if you can relate to that as well. If maybe, you know, you're in a small town, you there's nothing there and you go all around the world all of a sudden.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. I th- I, th- I think I caught that bug. i I remember in high school, I didn't want to leave. A lot of my friends are still there and I was going to do that. Um, something happened. I think when I went to Arkansas, that might be the, the switch that, that did it. Um, so yeah, but the, you know, I, was, I, was work, I was a bartender, um, worked my way up, took a couple of years, but I ended up being a, the main bartender at the the club, it was called The Backyard, making, and I'm not exaggerating at all, I think my worst night that I can remember was $600. And, it was
0: in the 90s?
1: Yeah, and I would leave regularly wow. with $800 in cash in my pocket every night.
0: <laughs> so you were a stripper?
1: No, I wasn't. I was, <laughs> was, was a good a bartender. <laughs> um
0: that's and then stripper hurricane,
1: money. Yeah. Hurricane Maryland probably saved my life. Because um, that that hit the island and, and the bar was destroyed. So hmm. I didn't have a job. And a, a guy that I'd seen briefly in the bar asked me if I wanted a job roofing. I said, yeah. And he ended up being a triathlete. And He asked me if I wanted to, we'd we'd talk and I talked about my running and stuff. And he asked if I wanted to do a triathlon. I said, sure, I'll try it. Borrowed a bike, went over to St. Croix, did my first triathlon, um, placed third and bought a bike. And four races later, I was qualified for the Hawaii Ironman. And three years later, I was number one in the world. And it was, it was quick (laughs) because I went from, it's that addictive personality where I went from nothing, um, zero fitness essentially Mm -hmm. to hyper fitness in just a couple of years. And I did that by having a crap ton of money, not working, moving back home to Kansas and training 30 to 40
0: hours a week. Oh, so you've been (laughs) saving money from your uh, bartending gig.
1: And then living at home. Yeah. I wasn't cool. Now at 24, I wasn't ashamed to be living at home with my mom, um, training all the time. Um, so, I, yeah, I qualified for Kona, Ironman Hawaii. Uh, my first time there, I placed, a, God, I can only remember, 130th overall. I think I ran like a 310 marathon. Um, having never run a marathon before and then never swam 2.4 before. The first time I slammed 2.4 miles well, I'd done it in the, in the Caribbean, probably, but I, there was nothing was measured. We didn't have GPSs or anything. Um, but the first time I officially swam 2.4 was two days before the race. Um, and I swam 103, which I still think is my best swim ever. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't swimming. I swim an hour a week because wow. there was no pool. There was no pool in where I lived. So it would be, you know, every other week I would drive to a pool and <clears throat> do a big swim. But I remember looking back and averaging it out over the six months leading up, and it was <clears throat> averaged an hour a week. Um, so the first time was, 100, I don't even remember the, the result, 130th. Um, my second time at Kona, the year later, I was 44th. And then my, my, third, my third time at Kona, I was 16th.
0: Um, How did you, um, I mean, were you comfortable swimming to begin with? Because you, you're yeah. obviously a runner. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess you picked up cycling because well, running strength, I think, translates to cycling for some people pretty well. Definitely. Definitely. But uh, swimming, I, think, I think the, yeah. the
1: football helped. Because I was mm. a weightlifter. You know, I was strong. I could muscle through the water. And I didn't mind getting hit. Like being <laughs> in a group of... A hundred swimmers all on your back, it didn't bother me at all. I didn't care you know I'd get punched in the face or kicked in the mouth, and I didn't even didn't even register. I'm like whatever um but I think that was part of it. no fear you know, living in the Caribbean and swimming you know we used to swim out to the to the Puerto Rican trench, which hmm. was over a mile, and we'd we'd half the time we'd be high or drunk and we'd <laughs> swim you'd swim like- you'd start. In the Mariana's Trench is twenty nine thousand feet deep, and right. we thought it was a kick to to go out open water, and just watch that that blue ocean turn black.
0: And I would argue we that being high or drunk would be causal on that.
1: <laughs> Maybe, but yeah, it was fearlessness. You know, just not not scared of anything.
2: Um, wow,
0: that's amazing. Is that also um, sometimes a, a problem though?
1: Uh, it is. I, You can go to my YouTube channel and see the problem, where and I'm aware I do this, but I love it. I absolutely love it. So <laughs> I've got like GoPro video of me hitting over 60 miles an hour on some descents here around my house. Oh my god! And I'm holding the GoPro. I don't have a mount for it, so I'm one-handed. <laughs> and I, there's a couple of them where I'm not wearing a helmet, and you know, I'm, there's this there's this stretch of there's this one mile stretch that I try to get in under a minute, and I do it pretty easy. Um, and I've got some F I've got some Strava records on descents, <laughs> which wow. there's one that's, it ends at this intersection and I, I, I blew blew away the descent Strava segment, but, um, yeah, it's toning down though. Since I've, since my kids are here, you know, I've, I've got two kids and, and I still catch myself once in a while being careless, but I'm not careless with them.
0: That's the main thing. Well, it's good. I so, mean, how does your wife handle um, your personality when you're hard charging?
1: She ignores it. Cuz <laughs> okay. when we met, I was mid mid hard charge. And
0: that's so
1: good. she she's never known anything else. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I I I did Iron Man a bunch, 15 Iron Mans, and ended up um US Iron Man champion. Um my best finish at Kona was 12th professional. I was in 10th briefly. And then that comes down to where that instance where I was in 10th, I think I might have been in 9th, legs failed. Wow. Which, which I've, I've explored. I've tried to mimic that again. And I did it last year where my legs just muscularly stopped working. And, and at Kona I was in 9th or 10th and my legs just locked up with a mile to go. I ended up getting passed by two guys. Still question, one of the, question. Let's go the back to that route. a
0: little. Mm-hmm. How did you pull through? I understand your legs locked up, but you finished, mm-hmm. you placed. How did you did. get beyond <clears> that point?
1: So I stood in the road for quite a while and I couldn't get my hips to move. And I started walking a little bit and then trying to run like straight, like a zombie type thing. <laughs> and then it kind of loosened up a little bit. I, and physiologically, that's, that's probably, um, you know, motor unit deactivation, some chemical stuff happening that just stopping for a minute or two minutes allowed that to, to clear a little bit. And then I was able to limp to the finish. And luckily the you know 13th place wasn't, was too far behind. That was the only reason I didn't get past again. Um, but yeah, it still haunts me to this day. I, if I think of Ironman Hawaii, it, the one thing I think about is that moment, nothing else. I mean, I've had some fantastic and amazing, you know, fastest splits and, and doing extremely well. And none of that even pops into my head. I don't care about that. It was the failure that, that did it.
0: Um, that was your body. It sounds like you literally shut down. It was not I did, a, choice, but it was a not a factor. It was a
1: choice. It was, it's always a choice because something led to that. And, and I can tell you precisely what led to that. It was me coming off the bike in 40th place at a horrible bike, came off the bike in 40th and went through 13 miles in 118 and proceeded to just beat myself to death. If I would have just paced it smart, I would have okay. been fifth.
0: <laughs> and that's so it's a the strategy respect. choice versus I meant if your body yeah. shuts down, it shuts down. I, but you made mistakes on the way to help cause
2: sure. that yeah yeah, yeah. No.
0: but that's your personality I mean <laughs> it, it, it it sounds like you know I've, I've listened to you for several years and if you had slacked off and gotten seventh you would have felt lazy knowing you
1: looking back what what I know now no but at the time yeah I think you're right <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and I would I would take that regret over the regret I have now anyway <laughs> So I was also poor, and I left. I mean, tenth place was ten thousand dollars.
0: Oh, that would hurt. Yeah,
1: no, I lost ten grand. I got a T-shirt Ooh. and a T-shirt's medal. That's what I got. And you know, the the trip itself cost me six thousand dollars. And so I it was a, was I lost technically sixteen grand on that moment. Hmm.
2: You know,
1: that decision to to not back off. You know, rather than run six minute pace, I could have run six twenty. And I would have been totally fine.
0: So anyway. Now, you were a professional at that point, correct? I was. Mm-hmm. Okay. Did you have any kind of sponsorships or?
1: I did, but it wasn't any travel stuff.
0: <laughs> what What is that like? I mean, not everybody gets to be a professional athlete. Um, how does that affect you? What's the process?
1: But I think that's for sure the the professional aspect and then also... And I've thought very long and hard about this as to why my current personality is and how over the last maybe eight years, I loathe racing. Racing, I can't stand racing. And, I, and it started out placing 11, or when I was 11, placing first. And there's pressure now. Mm-hmm. Before sure. that, there's none. All of a sudden, there's potential. So you've got pressure to perform. And I'm 11 years old, and then I get into high school Freshman year state champion in you know in the four by eight, freshman. I'm I'm 13 when I enter high school, 14 you know 15 state champions in football. We were we were undefeated, had the longest winning streak in the country when I was playing football in high school, um, 60 games without a loss, and the pressure that I didn't know at the time was there. Um, you go into college, you've got a scholarship, you're 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 there to perform and if you don't perform then thing right um and then i go i try iron man oh i'm good at this so all of a sudden bam i'm the top amateur in the country in the world i'm the top amateur in the world and so it just piles up and it keeps going all the way up until 2012. that Um, makes me
0: weird it's a weird analogy but that kind of makes me think of um gambling addiction that many, many people have become addicted to gambling won their first time gambling, and they won big. <laughs> do you I, think that losing your first race, or I, I hate to say you lose because that's not really, it's loaded, but if you had, let's say, placed third, and it took you six months to finally get first, do you think it might have been easier for you later? No, no? I don't think okay.
1: so. Was, I mean, the string of winning came regardless of that first one. I mean, it was, it was, we're talking decade of, of this where I, and and it became, I felt it and I remember feeling the pressure on myself, which is, which was also extremely detrimental to my, to my physical ability to race well, because I, my downfall, if I had one in, in training was that I just didn't break down. I, I, I could show you training logs that would make you think I was full of shit
0: I've heard of your training logs that are uh, enough to make people sick.
1: I, I've Tim DeBoom, who's won Ironman Hawaii multiple times, once told me that I he could never do what I'd do. Hmm. I do, and that should have been a big red flag. <laughs> He's here's this guy winning Kona, and I'm training with him, and I and I'm just destroying him on almost everything. Mm-hmm. But the problem, like, I remember weeks and weeks of of 35 hours of training with intensity six days a week. And I just never, it just, eh, <laughs> I didn't absorb it. But it, hmm. but the problem was I always was too tired. Right. You know, I could perform at this, this high level in training, but then when it came to racing, I, I just felt tired and I broke down.
0: And I think so there's a big training.
1: I did, absolutely. And I still <laughs> to this day... and I've come to the point now where I'm I'm at peace with that and I love it. Like my my workouts are bring me joy when I when I perform in a workout. The four hundreds that I raced last year, I didn't perform well and I don't care. I don't care because I had some fantastic workouts. (laughs) So well, there's something to
0: be said of that. That's saying you're loving the journey, and and a lot of people would say that's incredibly healthy because. Mm -hmm. You you just love the process. The um, the actual race is very short in the whole mm-hmm. scheme.
1: Yeah, you have to have that perspective correct to do that. Because I'm I'm a coach. I'm a professional coach now, and that's one thing that I talk a lot on is perspective and how you how you take a result and how you look at that result and what do you get out of it. So, and I'm talking about success and failure. Mm-hmm. What is a failure? What, what is a success? Um, and it's really important for a developing athlete to understand that failure, it, you can fail successfully and you can turn a failure into a success if you use it right. That's really important.
0: <laughs> so. Definitely. Now, question on that. Um, the intensity of training and the, the amount of effort that you can put forth how does that uh, affect your view of your athletes? Um, I'm wondering if you reflect what you can do on what they are actually doing or unable to do or more able to do.
1: Yes. Yeah, so well, a bit part of that is what I just said, where I, I trained so hard that I wasn't able to race well, mm-hmm. and I'm extremely in tune with that now. And that's at the forethought of everything I do, injury prevention and fatigue, Those are the two big things that will kill consistency. Um, And it's a fine line between good fatigue and bad fatigue, right? Mm -hmm. Fatigue is incredibly important. Struggle is important. Failure is important to a degree. (laughs) If you, I I could destroy an athlete, that doesn't make them better.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, So I've I've become very in tune with looking for signs. Um, And it's in a lot of what my experience Well, my experience with that is from my experience. I've been through that. I see an athlete do a track workout um, and I'll ask them, you know, the the morning afterwards, how do you feel? And I know everything that they're saying personally and intimately. I know exactly how they're feeling and and what the red flags are and should I give them a rest break or not? Um, And I think that's probably my biggest strength as a coach is the failures that I've gone through.
0: How do you handle I, your athletes' mindsets? I mean, what have you seen? What, what is uh, some trends? Lord.
1: I've coached for eighteen years with God. The number—it's got to be over six hundred athletes. Um, and every single person is so different. And I'm I'm really into the the psychological side of it because we don't understand it yet. Right. We I mean, isn't the and I'm not big on the artificial intelligence thing, but. We're struggling to make these really high-end artificial intelligence f- computers, right? Sure. That just sure. shows you that we don't know shit about the human brain. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> we don't even know how to make artificial intelligence. But you, what happens in your in your muscle tissue during a workout is has been known for decades. That's simple. Mm-hmm. I mean, what a workout is going to elicit physiologically is 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 child's play. Right. But how that athlete is going to perform in that workout from a psychological standpoint and how that workout is going to affect them psychologically and how that's going to carry over and develop and grow is everything. It's like a fingerprint, mm-hmm. even, even more unique than a fingerprint. I mean, trillions of neurons in our brains that they're all different. And so that's, that's deep, right? And mm-hmm. I mean, the only way to, The only way to understand an athlete is to develop a relationship with them and watch them and observe, give them, and I'm, I'm really good at giving them tests. So one of the tests I give an athlete is, um, a long run of four to 20 miles. (laughs) Let's see what they do. You know, the, the motivated driven athlete is going to get to 20 or the motivated driven athlete is going to be like, if I feel good at 20, can I run 22? (laughs) Um, then I'll have athletes who, You know, the the ones that that need a little bit more urging who will get to 10 and be like, I was tired, so I quit. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, now we, you know, there's a snapshot of this personality that we have. Um, Goal setting, you know, keeping goals in perspective. If an athlete is a a 330 marathoner and they want to run a 240 this year, well, let's talk about that. Mm You know, and I'll, or an athlete who wants to is a three thirty marathoner who wants to run three twenty five, and I watch their workouts, and then I'll uh, will show them that they're better than that. I'll get more out of them in training, and then I'll point it out. I'll be like, "Look at this! Look at what you just did!" Now think about, you know, your goals and and where you want to take this.
0: So, a lot of um, your job is to hold athletes back if they're too intense, like you.
1: Oh, I've said that before. Like, I think the number one job of a coach with a motivated athlete is, is telling them what not to do. I've got some athletes that are ridiculous. (laughs) I mean, I am constantly getting on them like back off, man. Come on. Um, you know, and and interestingly enough, I think the, the girls are the ones that are the, I call, I call some athletes robots where you just Mm -hmm. program the training and they do it. And they're tough. They're tough ones to coach because you have to really, because they'll ignore the signs of breakdown and fatigue. You know, the whiny, weak dude, he's going to quit before he gets tired and (laughs) you're safe there, right? It's like, this guy's not going to hurt himself. But you get a girl that's just tough as nails, man. And it's mostly women who you got to be careful. You got to handle them very gently because they will, you tell them what to do and they'll do it. Regardless of how they feel, you know, they've got stress fractures and torn ligaments and they're out there doing track workouts and you don't even know. So I stress communication. That's that's the biggest thing that I stress, because if I don't, the athlete isn't communicating, then
0: I don't know how to coach you. I don't know what you're doing in the military. um, Back when I was in the army, a lot of the best marksmen were women. And Mm -hmm. the theory was because they listened to instructions. Absolutely. Actually. Um, followed them, mm-hmm. whereas the men tended to challenge or sort of do their own thing a little bit or move aside. Have you just got, found any of that? Or
1: yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm talking about a little bit. You know, they, the the girls will will do exactly what I put in for a workout, so I got to be very careful what I put in. I can't just willy nilly throw some stuff at them because it might be wrong. Where the dudes will self regulate. It's called auto-regulation, where you you listen to your body and let it tell you when you're done. Girls girls tend to <laughs> just do what they're told from a coaching perspective. They just, they, you know, and I enjoy that a lot more.
0: How do you I, I elicit really do. information from your athletes? I'm, I'm, I'm curious because, like, I, I know I'm a runner and I won't say that I know my body super well or I just, how do you run? Oh, that's fine. How do you um, get Quality information from them. Do you have any good methodologies for that well, communication? I think,
1: I think starting off with a heart rate monitor, and I, and you've heard enough of my podcast to know that it's a love hate thing.
2: Um, sure.
1: But you, when you start with an athlete, there has to be some way to communicate with them what you want. Mm-hmm. So if I tell you to go out and run easy for six miles what the hell does that mean? I mean, we've got six miles, right? That's a set, but what is easy, right. easy to you, easy to me, um, easy. My easy is not easy. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: You know, my easy, <laughs> my easy sitting on the couch, you know? So you have to have some way of, of communicating exactly what you want and starting off with the heart rate monitor just to get on the same page with the athlete and, and you teach them what you want. So, you know, go go out and run easy, Eric, and I want you to run one twenty to one thirty. And you go out and you run six miles at one twenty to one thirty and and now you know what I mean when I say easy. <laughs> one twenty to one thirty. And so you can you can tie those two together, that that number that you're seeing on your watch with your perceived exertion. And okay. so that continues.
0: Um and how do you how do you dig deeper though? I mean I, I know about the heart rate and stuff, but I also know mm-hmm. that uh, one day your heart rate may be at um, a good rate, but mm-hmm. you're actually extremely fatigued. Like sure, your heart <clears throat> it's rate usually the other way around.
2: Yeah,
1: that's usually what happens. So depletion, carbohydrate depletion, and fatigue cause a, a suppressed or depressed heart rate with a higher effort,
2: um,
1: lower pace, slower pace. Um, yeah, I mean that's that's all stuff that you weasel out of the data. You you see that. So an athlete will tell me that they feel fine. Um, their heart rate was super low and they're, they're clicking along and I'm like, oh, how'd you feel? And they're like, I feel fine. Well, how'd you sleep? <laughs> I, I didn't sleep very well. My kids were up sick all night. I'm like, okay, do you, I mean, the, the mental cues, you know, how, motivation wise <clears throat> and motivation is a huge red flag. Um, I tend to coach primarily type A athletes, mm-hmm. not athletes who need me to hold their hand. That's not, that's not my specialty. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm i want to hold an athlete back rather than be a cheerleader. Um, but motivation for those athletes is a big red flag. Um, do you, do you feel like training again today? No, not really. Red flag. Cause if you're feeling good and you're a type A athlete, then you, you're, you're like, yeah, hell yeah, I'll do a bike today or I'll do a swim later. Um, little things like that. And then also looking at training logs, looking back. So an, if you want to know how you feel today, look at the last three days. Don't I don't even need to ask you how you feel. I can look at the last three days, compare that to what the last three months were, and I and I know how how tired you are, because I know you as an athlete. Um, in the initial development, it's it's bringing an athlete up to that level. Mm-hmm. So you start. I get a new athlete. We're just starting, and they send me what they've been doing for for the last month, and I'll chop it down. I'll cut it. Cause if they're a type A athlete, they're probably doing too much if they've been left to their own devices. And so they'll see their first week and they're like, dude, this is pretty easy. <laughs> yeah, it is. Cause I want to see how you perform and feel on an easy week. Uh, I can, okay. I can give you a week that will make you cry. I know how that's going to go. <laughs> I want to see, I want to start off with, with some predictability and some cons- consistency and seeing how you perform daily. Um, and so then you want a
0: baseline then.
1: A baseline for sure. And then I also want to always, always have a positive result until it's time for me to make them fail. Okay. So in order to build confidence, you can't just fail every time. If you fail every time, a lot of athletes will just become dejected and, and lose can lose confidence. So you start off with successes and then start to inch it up until they start to fail. And then, then we look at that and how that failure is going to, is probably going to be a good thing. The best workout you did last week was the one that you failed at <laughs> every time because <laughs> you learned so much more from that. You know, the, the one that you were successful at, you're like, oh, yeah, I did it. And then it's gone. But the failure sticks with you and you and you start to be a little more thoughtful as to why you failed and how you failed and how do you not fail again?
0: You know, how do you talk them through that? Because it sounds like you're a bit of a, a detective. Huh? Um bit of a psychologist, but how, how do you talk to your athletes? Because they're, they have some personalities in there. You, you obviously have Mm -hmm. to put a lot of thought in how you address them, how to address the concerns and how to deal with failure because much of it is failure, isn't it?
1: Depends. Like over coaching is where you, you give an athlete too much and they can't complete it. And I'm, and I Mm -hmm. don't do that. I very rarely do that. Um, and I, and I, I, I've had this question asked before, and I think a lot of it is intuition. I'm not sure I can ex- explain exactly, but, you know, having been there myself and I'm there right now, um, and from a training and fatigue and, and mental perspective, um, but then also having coached you know, hundreds and hundreds of athletes over almost two decades now, um, it comes as, I don't know, I could look at a training log and I just see it, it just pops out. I could probably walk it back and unpack it, if you will, and and explain what I'm looking at. But you generally, it's you just look at them like, yeah, you're tired. I can see that. Mm-hmm. So little data points, um, cutting a workout a little bit short, heart rate, wattage, um, little things like that. Excuses, excuses are a big <laughs> one. <laughs> if it's a viable excuse, I'm fine with that. But if it's not, I call bullshit and it's time to rest. <laughs>
0: Um, Have you ever read the book Blink by Malcolm Gladwell? No, I haven't. Didn't you you send me that? Um, I may have. I don't know. But when you describe that of being able to just glance at a training log, it makes me think of Blink and the principle of, you know, true experts have seen things for so long that you can identify a concern and not even know how you got there. And it starts off talking about how there was uh, some fraudulent sculptures that passed all the experts view, except one expert saw it and said, it's a fake instantly. Mm. Didn't even know cool. how he did it. So I'm kind of wondering if um, mm-hmm. that's where you are with, uh, you know, 20 years of experience and so many athletes and so many variants. And I think you mm-hmm. even coach um, some Olympians or Olympic trials past. athletes. Yeah, yeah that's, not anymore. That's yeah. still, still yeah. astounding.
1: Yeah, it's good. And that the one of the girls that I that I worked with, I, it took me 5 years to get her there. And she started off as a a 320 marathoner, ended up running 241. That's it's um, amazing. Yeah, and she was she was a robot. I mean, I had to be super <laughs> careful with her. I mean, I would I, she lived in Minneapolis and I would tell her, you know, 20-mile run today. And I would get the feed after the fact. I would get the feedback, and she's like, "Yeah, snow and so I did this on the treadmill." I'm like, "Shit, okay, <laughs> <laughs> let's change tomorrow then, because that's brutal." Um, and then also the psychological burnout. Athletes hate it when I make them rest, and I love that. It's a good sign, <laughs> if, you know. The ones who I try to make an athlete ask for rest, but most of the time it doesn't happen, and <clears throat> so I'll just chop it and make them rest, and they hate that.
0: So um what happened with you uh, now that you mentioned burnout, I oh, I know that you did um lead man and please mm-hmm. do me a favor and break down lead man and exactly <laughs> what you did because it's astounding. And I always tell people they go, Oh, you mean Leadville? I'm like, No, that's only part of it. Yeah. So um, please the, break it down.
1: The burnout, I, I've thought a lot about that. And one thing that I'm uh, that I really try hard to do is be extremely brutally honest with myself. I mean, I call bullshit on every day on myself constantly and, and I'm harder on myself than anybody. And I, I believe that, and I I blogged about this. I don't know if you've read my blog, but it's got like 1200 posts. Um, That's it. Years. Yeah. Years and years of, of daily training logs and writing about my feelings and what I thought and all this stuff. But I, I remember writing And it just kind of happened as I was typing that I'm finally satisfied. Like I've never satisfied before. (laughs) I always Mm. wanted more. I always wanted to do, you know, nail that perfect Ironman where you, your legs fail and you black out on the finish line type of thing. And that's actually Mm. from Peter Reed, not me. But, um, and with Leadman, it finally happened. I feel like I put it all together. Um, alcohol aside, we can talk about that um cuz I well, was a first, drunk I did it
0: <laughs> That's scary but first tell us what Leadman is
1: So Leadman so there's a series of Leadville races Leadville Colorado um the town sits at 10,300 feet in the mountains which is pretty close to where I live um and there's a series of races that happen there and it starts off with the marathon which goes it goes up over 13,000 feet um all mountain rough terrain Trail type of stuff. And then the second race is a 50 mile bike or a 50 mile run. And in the Leadman series, you can choose. And what you do? So I did the bike because I wanted okay. to win. Um, And the 50 mile bike. And then the next race is the 100 mile bike. And then the next morning, the day after that is the 10K run. And then five days after that is the 100 mile run. Jeez. And you, when I did it, they they spaced it out a little bit more now. But when I did it, it was all of those races over seven weeks, so mm. it's tight. And if anything goes wrong, you're done. You're not going to win. And, um, and I went into it very cocky and assured I was fit. And mm. I'd done I'd done the hundred mile mountain bike two years before, and then the hundred mile run the year before. And in the hundred mile run, I got sixth or fifth or sixth, I think sixth. Um, so I, I had some confidence there. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and that's why I did those two races. I did the bike first cause I wanted to see how it was and how to do it. And then I did the hundred mile run to see how I could do. And, and then I did the lead man and that was a three year plan. Um, and I did the race, did the lead man. And I broke the previous record by five hours. Um, just five
0: hours, huh? <laughs> finished <laughs> in
1: just... the top. Yeah. Finished in the top 10 in the 100-mile run, I finished, I broke the course record in the open 10K. Oh, um, wow. I, I got fourth because three other guys broke the course record too. But I broke <laughs> the, but none of those guys had biked the 100 miles the day before. And so the 100-mile bike the day before I finished in eight hours and 30 minutes or something like that. Pretty brutal. Wow. Wow. But then the next morning, you know, I ran, what, I ran 37 minutes for the 10K? You know, mm-hmm. dirt road, hilly. 10,500 feet altitude. (laughs) And, you know, I was pretty happy with that. Um, You should be. And then in the marathon, I got second um, overall, first lead man. Um, And my goal was to win one of the races. And that's why I raced the 10K. I thought I could win it. It happened to be three other college kids who showed up. (laughs) (laughs) You never get to pick your your placing. Um, So, yeah, that was... That was good. And then immediately afterward, I I just felt it. I just felt done. Like I'm happy now. I can I can step back and I can relax a little bit. It's been, you know, I was forty one. Something like that. I was forty or forty one when I did that. And so it had been, you know, 30 years since I had been satisfied. (laughs) And I finally finally was like, okay, I think I'm pretty good. I'm I'm happy with that. And I took four years off. I didn't hmm. do anything for four years. I biked and I lifted weights. That was all I did, and it was purely for fun. But I took, I will bet three years off of running. Didn't run a step. Hmm. I mean, well, Ragnar, never mind. I did Ragnar, but um, yeah. And then I decided that I wanted to continue to lift weights, and I was, and I'm like, what can I do for fun that would that would be something I haven't done yet? And I've, you know, I'd done. I mean, all the way through from high school with track and field, through college in the thousand, in the the fifteen hundred, and and then Ironman, and then I did the marathon briefly, um, ran two thirty there, and then ultras. I'm like, what haven't I done? I'm like four hundred, so I just pulled it out of the hat. I'm like, I'm going to do the four <laughs> hundred, and so the, this last year I was, um, I was. 1.2 seconds off being ranked top 10 in the world in the 400.
2: 400 so mm-hmm. this in the past years.
1: Yeah. Still. In my age group. Good six, 16 weeks of running. So I was, I'm, I'm the future is looking there. We'll see if I can keep going with it.
0: So yeah. You're a machine. So yeah, but um, the alcohol thing. So yeah, I'm curious about that because you you yeah, had mentioned that in passing, and I know you deal. haven't drank for a while.
1: I haven't drank for four years, um, but during the year leading up to Leadman, I I was I was an alcoholic for sure. I get it really you heard me hesitate. It really hurts to say it, but it, but it it was true. Um, six pack a day for sure, mm-hmm. and some days more never hard alcohol. It was always IPA, which, you it's know, the hardest
0: beer you can buy.
1: <laughs> I was, I joked that I was an IPA a holic because okay. we'd go to a party and if they didn't have IPA, I wouldn't drink. I was fine. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't hit the bottle, you know, the proverbial whiskey and hard alcohol. And, you know, I didn't like other beers. And so it was just IPA. Um, but yeah, I, through that whole training and everything, I in all of Leadman, I drank six-pack every day. Um, yeah, I, I, the one little regret there is that I wonder how much faster I could have gone <laughs> had I not done that.
0: Um, Were you using it as a training recovery tool, though? I mean, no, I'm just curious. I know better than that.
1: I, I was using it as an escape, just not liking my reality, my world. I wasn't happy. Um,
0: what, was, what was wrong?
1: I don't know. I think, I think there's a transition from, from, and I started drinking right after my kids were born mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure it was that loss of identity and not, I mean, not wanting to not be an athlete, you know, I'm now a father and mm-hmm. the, the responsibility is different than it ever had been. And, you know, I probably didn't handle it well. And I, I, was using that to, to escape a little bit. And it hit me finally. And I'm like, all right, this is bullshit. This is, I'm done. And I went from six pack a day to zero in four years. So again, that extreme switch, but, um, (laughs) yeah. And I, and I, and I came to the realization that I'm, I'm using alcohol to escape and what am I escaping from? And, and I think it was that identity issue and unhappiness in it. And so I dealt with that face on and nothing to escape from now. <laughs> if I use, if I have an escape now, it's not even training. Like that's, that's not an escape anymore. That's just part of what I've always been.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I'm, it, it's not an escape because if I tried to train, it would be just going back to what I was. Mm-hmm. So nowadays I escape, it's video games.
0: Video games. Oh, really? Absolutely.
1: And the video game thing is funny because I had an Atari when Mm -hmm. I was growing up. Everybody did, right? And then I didn't have anything.
0: our age, yes.
1: Right? (laughs) Right. Good point. Good point. And and then uh, several years ago, a buddy of mine gave me an Xbox. His wife made him get rid of it. Which I can see why. I can see why. But it had like 21 games with it Hmm. and it blew my mind. I was, I was so like infatuated with the technology and I'm not a techie guy at all, Mm -hmm. but the fact that you can go in and what you can do in a video game still to me is just, it blows me away. I can't believe it. (laughs) And so I've, I've fallen in love with them. Um, But I use that. I, I play very, um, selectively like I, I get up at three o'clock in the morning um, and I'll play from like three to five or six when the sun comes up and then I'll go work out
2: hmm, and that's what about
1: kind of it games? mostly first-person shooter shocking Um, yeah right Um, <laughs> so th- my favorite is the I mean the first game I played on Xbox was Call of Duty Black Ops 1 and, and so that is like what I always like. And so now I'm Black Ops 3 in World War II. Um World War II was cool because my grandfather was a Purple Heart vet in World War II, mm. Battle of the Bulge. Um, and they've got the Battle of Ardennes in the game. And, and I, I dig that kind of. <laughs>
0: um, yeah, you seem to have an affinity for the military.
1: I do. One of my big regrets is not going into the military because I would have been so good at it.
0: Why is it you um you didn't want to at the time or never crossed my mind. It, hmm.
1: I moved into other things, went to college, and then traveled and um yeah. But I, I regret that. I thousand percent. If I could go back in time, I would probably go into the military when I was eighteen.
0: Okay. What is it you admire about the military?
1: I like the discipline and the, the difficulty of it. That struggle. And that, that's all I've sought. That's what I've sought for myself my whole life. You know, I, I got up this morning, my legs are trashed. And so I went out and I tried to hurt myself in the weight room. <laughs> that was what I wanted to do. That's fun. You know, is seeking that struggle and seeking that, that pain. I don't know if it's pain. It's not pain because I, I enjoy it. And it's not suffering because I enjoy it. So it's the challenge, I think.
0: I know you listen to Jocko Willink. Have you um, listened to uh, David Goggins? I can't listen
1: to Jocko. I like Jocko, and I've listened to quite a few of his podcasts, but I just don't dig it. I don't know why.
0: Yeah. Okay. I'm not sure. Um, Well, check out David Goggins then. (laughs) I know know David, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he's a badass. Yeah, his (laughs) his backstory. His backstory is interesting, right? Yeah, it is. Went from being overweight and bullied and stuff like that to being a pretty amazing, dude.
0: Scary, and mm-hmm. Living with SEALs is a great book too. Yeah, I haven't read that either. I don't read military books. It's not uh, military. It's uh, about a guy who hired him for thirty days to turn his life around. Oh, really? Yeah, I think that... you would enjoy it. He he, he really um, <clears throat> he treated the guy to some punishment. It was like getting to a thousand push-ups a day, and uh, oh, it's snowing outside. Fine, really we're gonna go cringe. roll, run for eight miles.
1: A cringe. Cause that's not what I do. It's what I'm against. <laughs> uh, it is. It is
0: what you're against. It, uh, yeah. But it is an entertaining read.
1: Yeah, I'll bet. I'll, I'll have to check that out. I read a lot, and it's never any of that stuff. What but. do you read? Um, right now I'm reading the Gulag Archipelago. Which is
0: painful, Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson. Christ, that's
1: painful. I can't read it very much. I can only read like ten pages, and then I got to move over to something Vince Flynn or CIA type stuff that's entertaining. But I like a lot of apocalyptic, you know, zombies and you know EMP blasts and survival mm. type stuff. And I read the Quran. I read Victor Frankel's Men's Search for Meaning. Um, what else? Vladimir Putin's biography. Um, yeah, anything I can get for free generally <laughs> from the library. My wife's a librarian, as you know. Um, so I, she scouts books for me and
0: brings them home. That's awesome. How do, How do you read primarily physical books? Um, Kindle both. or both. both? Yeah. And, and audiobooks. audio books. Okay. I yeah. Was a ask. lot of
1: audio Um, cause there are a lot of free audio books at the library too.
0: Um, awesome. Like
1: Craig Johnson, CJ Box, modern western type stuff. I really enjoy.
0: I, I can see that audiobooks. Mm-hmm. Um, I find great for when I'm working out. Yeah, no well, way. The way to keep <laughs> an easy run easy.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. I guess I can bike to audiobooks, but I can't run.
0: I don't know why. What? I'm not sure. I I know that if I listen to music, I will run harder. Then I'm supposed to. So, so listen to, to podcast or audiobook, it's kind of a governor.
1: Yeah, so I have I have some playlists that I use for that. Um a lot of like right now I'm into Tina Gua, who's a, a cellist. Hmm. And she's she's fantastic. She her her music's amazing. Um, but she's an electric cellist. She does both traditional and electric, really calming and soothing. Um And then some soundtrack stuff. So last, the Mohican soundtrack. Um, And then some selective songs off of like 300. And um, what's the other one? Gladiator has some amazing, amazing songs on there that are really calming. The Royal Scots Dragoon Guard, which is bagpipes, traditional Scottish bagpipes. Best running in the mountains, I'm telling you. So you get up here on a snowy, foggy day, listening to bagpipes, it's kind of (laughs) surreal.
0: Do you do snowshoe running or? I hate snowshoes. (laughs) I'll
1: do do screw shoes and just run in the snow. Uh, Yeah, I don't like how it changes my stride. Mm. If I was a snowshoe racer, I would, but
0: no, no thanks. Well, speaking of podcasts, et cetera, you are on an extremely popular one yourself, Endurance Planet. How did that come about?
2: Um,
1: Needed a spot filled. So Ben Greenfield um, owned Endurance Planet first, and then he wanted an ultra runner, an expert on ultra running. And I had done one (laughs) or two. And so I don't know how we got connected. (laughs) I honestly don't know him didn't. I just got this email out of the blue from a guy named Ben Greenfield. I didn't even know who he was asking me if I'd do a podcast with his partner, Tawny. I'm like, sure, I'll try that. Never done one before. And so me and Tawny met virtual meeting and then started the podcast. And that was
0: six years ago. Yeah. Almost 400 twice this weekend.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It it's been fun, <laughs> and Tawny's amazing. She's uh, I've watched her grow up. I mean, she's thirty, so she was twenty four when we started this podcast. And to me, oh, you know, wow. I'll be fifty in a few years. She's a she was a kid, <laughs> you know? and it was it was a pretty cool dynamic. Um, yeah, she wasn't. She didn't even know who she was. Like she thought she did, but she didn't. And I watched it over the years. Her find herself and mature and and but she's she's always been just amazing to me. Really smart, very well put together.
0: Um, yeah. Well, you guys have a really um neat dynamic. How how is that? Um, it seems like you spend a lot of time talking with each other.
1: Yeah, I think we're good friends. I, I've said before that she's probably one of my best friends because I've, I've, I don't talk to people. I mean, I'm pretty isolated where I live. I don't, I don't see people, um, and I, and I talk to my athletes, but that's a different relationship. Um, and so I've talked to her every week for six years, and it's been long conversations. We're talking two hours a week and not just the podcast, but before the podcast, we we'll get into a conversation and it just runs for 45 minutes. And we just we enjoy talking to each other. I think she enjoys my no bullshit. (laughs) If she says something, just call her out on it. And (laughs) I'm not I'm not mean, but you know, I'm I'm totally honest with her and I have her best interest in mind. I mean I love her. She's she's incredible. I want her to do nothing but succeed. Um, and so I think she, she probably senses that a little bit. Um, and then I have flown out to California quite a few times to hang out with them and do Ragnar. She's been here. She, her and her husband have come to Colorado and they've stayed at our house.
2: Um,
1: and I coached her for a year, long time ago. So yeah, we've developed this, this pretty close bond. Uh, we have a lot in common. And then again, we don't, she's from Southern California and I'm basically a redneck hillbilly living in the mountains. I mean, you couldn't be more different. I'm almost 50. She's only 30. She's, mm-hmm. you know, huge age difference. She's a girl. I'm a boy. But we get we get along really well. She's like my sister.
0: So, so you're yeah. almost um, alike enough and different enough at the same time to reveal things within each other.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We have a lot in common and those bonds are tight. But then there's these little offshoots that we just completely disagree on. <laughs>
0: Well, aren't those sometimes the fun things? Absolutely. It's the struggle, man.
1: You don't learn anything from arguing in the mirror. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta have confrontation. Otherwise you don't learn anything. So. Now, you, mentioned, other...
0: you mentioned being isolated. Um, you live pretty far up in the mountains, don't you?
1: I wouldn't say far up. We're ironic or I don't know the difference between ironic and coincidence, but we're, we're close to. We're 20 miles or 14 miles from Boulder,
2: hmm.
1: but there's a mountain range that separates us. So it is 14 miles, but it takes a half hour. And you know, I don't know if you've seen the Flatirons of Boulder, but Picture. you you run, <laughs> yeah, you run from Boulder to the top of the Flatirons, and you look over the Flatirons towards the Divide, and that's where I live, out in the middle of nowhere. So it's not a town. We're an unincorporated Golden, technically but there's a a liquor store and a gas station are the (laughs) only two things that are even close to us and a coffee shop now. Um, Yeah, it's, it's just, I live 400 meters from the edge of Arapaho national forest and that's huge. It's monster. Uh, Pretty close to a place called Walker ranch and golden gate Canyon state park. And that's it. It's just wilderness. We have neighbors and stuff, but everybody keeps to
0: themselves. Yeah. Mountain lions and things like that.
1: Oh oh yeah. (laughs) I've never seen one. I've, I've followed one, never saw him, but he was right in front of me. He was, it was in a big snowstorm. It was dumping snow and I was up in Arapaho. I was in the national forest, um, trying to run up to this place called star peak. I'd never done it in the snow and I wanted to see what would happen. Um, and I fall in line on this game trail with, with mountain lion tracks. And they were, were pretty fresh because they hadn't been filled in. And I ran behind it and I was running pretty hard trying to catch it. And I think he was <laughs> staying ahead of me. And, and at one point three, I don't, I'm not a tracker, but mm-hmm. two or three other mountain lions joined in with him. Yes. And so I, yeah, I stopped and turned around, <laughs> but that's the closest I've ever been. We've had bears on our deck. We've had bears in our car, um, elk in our yard, Um, Bobcat links, seeing the links in our yard and yeah, it's pretty cool. (laughs) We've been here for,
0: uh, what is it? Nine years. Oh, wow. Yeah. So what brought you there? What made you seek that out? Was that the athletic community or?
1: Um, we were in, in Louisville, which is right outside of Boulder for nine years was we moved from Seattle to Boulder. Um, And then one of my wife's friends lived up here, lives up here, and we would come visit. And we had a condo, and our first son was on the way, and we decided we needed a bigger place. So we put our house on the market and started looking, and the house that we're in now popped up. And it was during the – it was 2008-ish, Two thousand nine, and the housing market had just completely folded. You remember that, I'm sure. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And the house had been appraised at, and we got it almost, we got it over a hundred thousand less than asking. Oh wow. Or, or the value, um, with a new roof. It needed a new roof, and I, I said, we'll buy it if you put in a new roof, and they said, okay. Wow. <laughs> so we got it. Um, and it's doubled in value since the housing markets come back, but, um, it's a beautiful home It's built in 1950,
0: um, like old rustic, cool old house. But what attracted you to the Boulder area altogether? I mean, I know there's a huge was, triathlon yeah. community.
1: That was it. Okay. Yeah. We were, we were in Seattle and while I was there, that's, it was in 2000 and I had placed 16th at Ironman Hawaii, top amateur, yada, yada, yada. And my wife finished grad school at UW and we've like, where do we want to go? And we had met in winter park. I had gone to winter park. I used to, when I was working in the Caribbean, I would come home in the off season mm-hmm. and I would go to winter park and I would work in facilities, which is the janitor. And so I would okay. come back and I would have time as a janitor and then run and bike up there in winter park for like two months or three months.
0: Now, where's Winter Park? Seattle?
1: A ski resort? No, it's it's right over the divide from us. We're 16 oh, okay. miles from Winter Park right now, but it takes two and a half hours to drive to it. Because the, the Continental Divide is backed up to my house, right behind our house. And if I've run there. You run mm. up over the Continental Divide, and just as soon as you pop over the peak, Winter Park's right below you.
0: Okay. So, was she, was she on vacation there or something? Or? No, she worked there
1: in the... Oh. National Support Center for the Disabled, Um, Mm, and then she got accepted to grad school, and I went with her, so. Okay, very cool. I was a janitor, and she was an administrator. I always joke that she slummed with the janitor. (laughs) I used to come in and clean her office.
0: Sounds like a Billy Joel song.
1: Yeah, (laughs) I love Billy Joel.
0: Um, My wife always says that um, I went into the library and checked her out
1: yeah wow, that's a good one. <laughs> I dig that <laughs> in the adult section.
0: mm who's telling <laughs> uh, Let me see yeah one a question though being where you are, you've mentioned that you're relatively isolated um okay. does that does that worry you or concern you at all with your kids and maybe a lack of cultural exposure, or do you guys? overcome that somehow.
1: Yeah, definitely. I, I think of that because I would have, I would have bought a ranch in Wyoming Mm -hmm. if my wife had let us. Um, And she, she brought that up. She's like, you don't want to isolate your kids like that. So there's a school up here. um, That has like Ben, my, my oldest son, his class is 12. Mm -hmm. And, Oliver's class is, I think it's 18 or something, biggest class in the school. And so they have that, the, the school outlet. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, do kids play outside nowadays? If you go, if I drive down into Denver, I don't see kids out playing all the time. True. And so, I mean, how much are they missing out really? If we compare it to how we grew up, then yeah, the mm-hmm. kids don't do that anymore. Hardly ever when do you see kids biking down the street by themselves
0: well should be arrested, yeah don't get me going on that, but
1: <laughs> um yeah there yeah it's a it's a little bit of a concern, but I mean it, it, it of all the concerns that we have for our kids that's that's ranks pretty low to me you
0: right are they you know big they? readers like you
1: um Ben is reading Jocko Wilnicks um What's the kid's book way of the
0: warrior, oh, way of the warrior kid or something kid okay. warrior.
1: Yeah. But no, no, they're not huge. Oliver is more into art. He, he writes stories and books and is right now he's making a, a, xenomorph costume, which is the alien from aliens. Mm-hmm. He's making a costume out of cardboard. That's what he was doing this morning. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Speaking Been, of art, um, you're a bit of a leather worker, aren't you?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was talking about, um, Craig Johnson and uh-huh. he, he did the Longmire series on Netflix.
0: Right. Right. Books. Um,
1: too, which is fantastic. Yeah. The books, I read all the books and then the Netflix thing popped up and just huge fan of it, but I made a, a fly rod case for him. Oh, wow. And was able to give it to him recently. But yeah, I, I, I don't know where the hell that came from. Partly insomnia um, getting up at, know um, used to get up worse. I used to get up around one. I go to bed at nine and wake up at one and be awake and I was fine. Um, but I needed something to do. And so I started making leather stuff and fly rod cases specifically because I love to fly fish. Um, yeah, made some, made some pretty nice little things
0: that's well, uh, it's a cool thing to get into um so you're also a baker if i recall i bake my kids cakes <laughs> have a good time with it too
1: yeah i like the art stuff i do
0: uh, have you always been artistic or is that something yeah
1: recent? yeah for sure that was my favorite class in school high school um, my art history teacher, or not my art history, my art teacher, um, he was also our our history teacher. His name was Ron Johnson. Probably everybody has a teacher story, right? Mm-hmm. But he had a huge effect on me. I mean, I looked up to him and his daughter was my first girlfriend, <laughs> by the way. I don't think he knew that. Um, he died of cancer mm. like 15 years ago. but. He had been in the Peace Corps in Liberia, Central Africa, and um, he used to regale us with stories on that. But I remember he was very, I don't know, I mean, he was like Jordan Peterson a little bit. Like He would say stuff that people were just like, what the hell is he talking about? Like crazy stuff. (laughs) But looking back on it, he was so right. Hmm. He'd, He'd be lecturing, he'd kind of grumpy. Mm-hmm. But not in a mean way. Like he would just be like, "You kids, you kids don't know what, what the hell's going on in this world, and you know you don't know how easy you got it. Why don't you go to Africa and live for a month and tell me that you got it so hard?" He'd just go on these rants in class. All the other kids are like scared to death, and I'm like, "You know what? He's right. That guy's right." So he, I got him. Um, that was yeah. your art teacher. That was my art teacher and history teacher. It was a small school. Oh, okay. The school had. 90 kids in our whole high school my i graduated with a class of 11 so it was a little school and teachers you know my my gym teacher was also our football coach our track coach and our math teacher
0: okay okay that makes that type of
1: yeah but he had a pretty profound effect on me and i loved art i just loved it in fact i my first year of college i majored in art history Hmm. no not still shaking my head at that. Not sure why I did that. It was a triple major: art history, biology, and chemistry was my official, and then I ended up moving to biology and chemistry, and not applying myself at all.
0: See so a range.
1: I was there to run. <laughs> I wasn't there to sit in a damn classroom, so I didn't pay attention. I didn't learn anything.
0: Well, going off yeah. your art teacher, do you believe in heroes, and do you have any? Oh
1: god, I don't have any heroes. Maybe my grandfather. So I grew up, I never had a dad. My mom he left as soon as he found out my mom was pregnant, and so there was never that male figure there except for my grandfather. But I didn't know him. Like he was that stoic, quiet type. You know, he took me fishing and and I was with him all the time. Like my mom worked two jobs raising two kids, single mom, and he babysat. He and my grandmother baby status. So he was there, but he never really talked much. So I don't know if he would be a hero.
0: Taciturn. I mean,
1: yeah. Yeah. I look I, looking back. I wish I would have forced him to tell me more about World War II. You know, he was shot 23 times. God. Or he had not shot completely. I mean, he had, they'd thrown a lobbed a grenade behind a tank that he was behind and it blew up. And he had I've still got the shrapnel that he took out of him. I've got a box of it um, along with tons of Nazi medals and patches and gold teeth and stuff Mm. that he had scavenged off of Nazis that they killed. Purple Heart, um, all his stuff that he he brought back with him, a wallet, a billfold that he had on him that he got shot in the ass and it's got a bullet through it, a bullet hole. (laughs) Everything that was in the wallet is still in there, a picture of of my grandmother with a bullet hole through her head in the picture. <laughs> I mean, it, I've still, it's fully intact, but he got shot in the butt. <laughs> but he had 23 different, you know, punctures from bullets and shrapnel. And he lived. He, he got out in a VA hospital for over a year, hooked on morphine, severely hooked. I mean, back then they just, mm. you know, they put you in and hooked you up to morphine and, and you healed. And then afterwards they kicked you out with a severe opioid addiction. And they put him in a mental hospital to get him over the opioids. And then he switched to alcohol. He was a severe alcoholic um, all the way up until I was my until my sister was born. And then he quit drinking. Hmm. But he was. Yeah. I mean, I just looked up to him. He I think mostly because of World War Two and just how profound that was to me.
0: Um, sure. But in terms of heroes. Did he inspire your fearlessness that you seem to. Oh, no. Display? Or... No, I, nah. I don't think so.
1: I don't think so. I don't know. Where, I don't know where that would come from. Me and my friends, maybe just the shit we used to do. God, we used to do so many things that we should have killed us. I mean, I remember climbing to the top of a 200 foot cable tower with a with a watermelon in my hood of my hoodie, <laughs> and my buddies were down below, and they wanted. I was going to throw this watermelon off this 200 foot tower to see what would happen. <laughs> <going> up, <laughs> swimming in the water tower like we climb the water tower and at night and you jump in and it wasn't until a couple times after jumping in that we realized that it was just completely crosshatched with these braces oh my god should have hit one which would have killed you because you would have drowned <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, there's there's so many stuff so many things i i, I could name on 10 things that i should be dead for that never happened. And that's probably why I'm fearless is because I've never died.
0: I've never you, though, been. I mean, have you ever truly been afraid of anything?
1: Yeah, definitely. Afraid of of something terrible happening to my children. Okay. That scares the crap out of me. <laughs> I read the, I made the mistake of reading The Road, which don't, don't. If you have kids, <laughs> don't read The Road. Okay. The, the thing that bothers me about that book is that there's just no good ending. You can't rationalize a good ending every book every post-apocalyptic book i've read there's there's some way to conceptualize a way to continue going and and living Mm. the road no it's just shit it's just this dark horrible path (laughs) and i hated it but i still have these nightmares about having to um having my kids and me being you know to quote the book their ward and the world is horrible, and I have to protect them, and I can't. And then I die, and I leave them on their own. That's that to me is fear, horrible fear. Nothing scares me about myself. I mean, I, nah, <laughs> I don't. I can't think of anything that would scare me.
0: Do you care like, for, for your family?
1: Yeah, definitely. That's it. Like it would be fear for other people would be the only thing that scares me.
0: How about your sister? I think you mentioned before she's in the FBI. Do you ever? Yeah,
1: she's a badass. (laughs) She's amazing. If if I had a hero, it might be her. I mean, really? Or my mom. my mom was incredible. I mean, she raised two kids in the seventies and was always a good mother. Never never dropped the ball. She thinks she did, but I give I cut her a lot of slack because she didn't have anything. I mean, she was she was on welfare, food stamps worked two jobs and me and my sister turned out pretty damn good, (laughs) you know? Um, But my sister, she's in the FBI. Um, She's a victim specialist, meaning that a kid is abused or, or traumatized or anything. They call her in to be the first interview. She's the first person to talk to the child because uh, most people, most law enforcement isn't trained to, talk to a child without leading them. Mm,
0: mm, I'm okay, not sure if yeah. I'm getting
1: it right. If no, I'm not sure I understand
0: I'm that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So a cop's going to be like, did he, did, you know, did he touch you here? That's leading, right. you know, a three-year-old is going to be like, yeah, because <laughs> you suggested yeah. it, right. They're very suggestible. And so she is called in and her testimony is what puts most of these guys away. Like, the questions that she asks and the answers mm. that it elicits are what seals the case for them. So it's a pretty important, um, but she's also moved into recently internet, um, not only human trafficking, but also internet predators. So internet child predators, and they go do yeah. a lot of undercover stuff where they go into forums and Facebook and pose as, you know, 13 year old little girls and they chat with these dudes, these pieces of crap who want to hook up with them. And then it's a, like, what was that show where the Did guy catch a
0: predator with Chris Hansen?
1: That was it. That's what they do. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. But the human trafficking thing is, it's pretty amazing. I'm not sure people actually understand how much human trafficking there is.
0: I heard that your area is one of the worst spots in this country. I wouldn't put it. I wouldn't be surprised at all.
1: They think she thinks, her and her unit that works they think that 30% of Facebook is some form of predator 30% of all of Facebook is some guy trying to do something with an angle it's sketchy shit and yeah my kids aren't on Facebook but she she updates me with with sex sex offenders who move to my area. She keeps a inside tabs on them. She'll send me these names and phone numbers and addresses and pictures and all this stuff and be like, yeah, this guy just moved in. Um, we have one guy right now that's that's up the road, but he's not a child predator. He's uh he's a sex assault mm. on an adult. But yeah, she I respect her a lot. She's she's pretty cool, and her husband just retired from the U.S. Army. Um, he was a a DOC Department of Corrections guy in Guantanamo Bay for four years. Uh, yeah, he's got
2: right.
1: some good. He's got some good stories, man. Holy cow! <laughs> some really good stories. Talking to like top twenty terrorist dudes, you know. Pretty pretty cool. But their perspective, I really appreciate their perspective.
0: Yeah, you mentioned reading the Quran. Has that mm-hmm. changed your perspective on anything? Or? I
1: reinforced it. I read it for that reason. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, not, I didn't read it for that reason. I'll, I'll backtrack on that. But, I mean, there was so much negativity and, and fear and misunderstanding of the Islamic religion. Mm-hmm. And I didn't... I, I caught myself following that. What is it called? Identity politics. Is that what it mm. is? Where you, you fall into the group that you're with and you agree with them. You know, sure. you, you read a a buddy tells you that Islam is bad. And so you, you think Islam is bad. Mm. And I, and it was like, I don't know enough about it to form my own opinion, really. Um, And so I started reading a lot and it wasn't just the Quran. It was, it was, you know, the religion of peace, which is a website. Mm. Um, you know, going into pro Islam sites and reading what they have to say and just trying to get every single angle that I could before I formed an opinion. Um but I, I think the you know Islam is is not any different really than any other religion where you have these people who take the the word of God literally. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I mean you could take a Christian and say, you know, it, it, wearing Wearing a robe of made of different threads is punishable to, by death. Sure. Well, nobody thinks that. Nobody thinks that, but it's in the Bible, or some, right. it's something I've never read the Bible. I'm not a Christian, so. Um, but then I know there's some stuff like that in there where if you did take it literally, you would be so extremist and it'd be crazy. And I think that there's there's people like that in every religion. <laughs> and what we see with with Muslims, um, a majority of the the bad things that happen are that it's it's somewhat of an outlier but it tends it happens to be a significant thing you know if you go to the religion of peace they have a an ongoing list of of terror attacks right? updated updated daily and if you think that i mean and you got to think outside of our country i mean the u.s Mm -hmm. we're yeah, Muslims aren't committing these huge acts of terror in the U.S. right now, but no. the U.S. isn't the only place in the world. It's all Muslims over
0: the- mostly kill Muslims.
1: That's true, absolutely. So, but there's no question that they, you know, if you if you follow follow the basic ideology of it, that you're you're going to hate the Zionists. Or I don't even know if that's right. Is it? I mean, that's like Farrakhan. Louis Farrakhan or whatever his name is.
0: Yeah, he's charming.
1: Yeah, but he's <laughs> he's he's kind of that that extreme outlier. You know?
0: Yeah, he, he he's a version of it. Uh, I guess I I don't know the religion as deeply.
1: I don't. Um, yeah, I, I, this is the first time I've ever openly talked about it.
0: To be honest, <laughs> it's uncomfortable cause, because cause usually I, people get upset.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I try not to stir
0: the pot. So.
1: But I mean, my opinion is, is I think, I mean, it's a huge religion, sure. the largest religion in the world. And I right. think a vast, vast, vast majority is good. Right. And I think that, and I, and I think overall, I'm not a religious man, but I think overall religion is great because if it's something that you need to believe in to be a better person then go for it, <laughs> don't try to convert me. Mm-hmm. But if, if you want to do it, then awesome. If you're a better person for it, then it's, it's all good. It doesn't make a difference to me if you believe in God or not. It doesn't
0: affect me. Right. Is that what attracts you to some of, let's say, Jordan Peterson or? Yeah, Jordan's a,
1: yeah, I bought his book and I haven't read it yet because I've just been so inundated with it. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm, everything that I read, I, or not everything, a lot of what I read on Twitter feed and Facebook feed, a lot of Jordan Peterson stuff. And so I, I get enough and I understand it. And I, right. I don't need to read his book yet. I'll wait until maybe it all calms down or I or I get away from from reading so much about him. Mm. Um, yeah, He's I like Jordan Peterson. Yeah, I like a lot of what he says. And a lot of the other stuff is just, it just uh, goes in one ear and out the other. You know, I don't need to, I don't have an opinion either way on a lot of this stuff. But some of it definitely um, rings true. And a lot of it I already knew, I think.
0: Like get a your, get your, get your craft there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think just growing up in the Midwest in a small Kansas town, you know, the values and the, and all that stuff put in place. And then also just the discipline of, of being an athlete, you know, a self-motivated, disciplined athlete. And that's what I wanted to do. You know, make your bed type of stuff. Bucko. Uh, bucko. <laughs> that's a funny one.
0: I heard that yeah. growing up. So it, I found that charming. It's definitely a Western mm-hmm. term. And the one dad, thing. Go, on. go ahead. Go ahead.
1: Oh, the, the one thing is that all of this is new to me, though, like mixed mental arts, mm-hmm. which you're, you know, you're a member of. Right. And sure. That's that's all new to me. I mean, it's only been a few months since I've been in that group. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I started reading it, it just blew my mind. I'm like, I don't understand any of this. This is Greek to me. This is so far <laughs> above my education level and my pay grade. I'm it's not even funny. Um, it's only been in probably the last year or so that I've actually tried to seek out that, that, um, knowledge or try to learn up until then. It's been, you know, train really hard and, and then try to shut my brain off rather sure. than try to stimulate.
0: So how do you think, um, I guess you call it knowledge arts or there's the intellectual dark web or things (laughs) like that. How do they um, relate in your mind to running and training and athleticism?
2: That's a
1: good question. Um, The one thing that I'm drawn really heavily to is the, the knowledge of struggle. And I don't know if I'm wording that correctly, but like Jordan talks a little bit about Nietzsche
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And and I've read Frankel's book, and finding meaning in suffering. And I think that, that finding meaning in suffering takes away the suffering or changes, changes suffering. And I think that that sentence could describe sports psychology to a T, to a certain extent. Like a, a large part of of sports psychology is finding meaning in the suffering. Right. (laughs) You, you don't hurt for no reason and you don't do it willingly. If you're, if you're like Frankel and you, you're thrust into this position where you don't have a choice, but to suffer, that's a lot different than the, than the, the guy who goes out and chooses to suffer,
2: right? you know,
1: and like in the military, you know, like with David Goggins, Mm -hmm. I mean, he chose to go into the military but once he was in he didn't have a choice. He he could quit. But you still he was put through the suffering that that was put on him. Um and and I th- I think with an athlete who's going to go out and and punish themselves and hurt themselves and try to hurt themselves and and willingly suffer there has to be a greater level of meaning to it. Otherwise you won't do it. And how do you find that meaning? And that's the thing that I struggle with the most is It's easy to sit here and say that you have a meaning to the workout that you're going to do tomorrow. Mm -hmm. But then in the moment, after 15 miles of running really hard and you start to really suffer, is that meaning still there? And if it is, then great, you're going to be fine. If not, how do you reconnect with it? And that's what it boils down to a little bit is because athletes will always become complacent, every one of them. Um, Kip Choji just tried to break the two hour marathon and I watched it and I saw him become complacent. (laughs) I watched it happen. Like, yep, there, there it was within a Hmm. span of shoulders dropped a little. And within a span of, of minutes, he accepted the fact that he wasn't going to break two. And when he finished, he felt he, he visually looked fine. And I, and he'd had, he gave up um, and at a certain point he probably thought, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm still going to make, you know, 10,000 times the yearly income of a Kenyan if I don't break two. And I'm already a millionaire and I think money and sociological factors, um, play a huge role in that. Um, but the, uh, you, you know, you, you start to really suffer and you you put your hand over the flame and how do you not take it out? And I think you have to be highly motivated, and you have to have a, a reason for it. Um, and that—that that to me is sort of the linchpin of of how to get the most out of an athlete. They have to have that reason.
0: So you find meaning in the suffering.
1: I think you can. <laughs> I think that you can you can have a meaning for the reason to suffer. Like you want to you want to win a race, or you want to be better. But to actually be suffering and have the suffering itself be the meaning. I don't know. That's pretty dark,
2: isn't it? <laughs> I'm,
0: I'm. I mean, not is sure. that Nietzsche
1: right there? That that's you know, choose to suffer instead of be happy type well, of idea. Nietzsche
0: was a very very sick man. I love genuinely. him genuinely. <laughs> I mean, he was ill genuinely. Yeah,
1: I know. He was yeah, suffering. I'm still. Yeah, I'm trying to get through. Um, I tried to get through. God, what was it called? I I tried to read one of his books and I couldn't do it. I'm not that smart, but. Yeah, that's fascinating to me, though. And I think seeking out suffering and from from a wider view, that is also part of what is wrong with the world today. The Western world in the U.S. is people we've put so much energy into avoiding suffering that it's ridiculous. Right. And, And everything is is everything that we do is to make things easier. You don't see any product out there that's designed to make your life harder. It's not there. And Except so, for
0: these crazy races that we actually pay to enter.
1: Such a such a small percentage. I mean, if you look at the overall whole of the country, you know, we're approaching 40% obesity rate, 80% overweight. It's astonishing. And it's not getting better. And I don't think it's going to get better. Um, and again, that's a form of suffering where... I, I mean, the meaning of suffering, these people are suffering. Sure. You can say, you're happy, but you're okay. Maybe you are, but a majority of people are suffering. And why? I don't, I, don't, I don't understand that because the, it would be very easy to not do that. But why aren't we doing that? Why are we getting more lazy as a society? Why are we moving towards drugs and alcohol more um, to escape what? What are, what's with what the opioid thing? People are popping pills and and shooting heroin and all this other stuff. Why? What, what's going on in our lives that that is making us miserable? And I think that we're not struggling. We're not we're not pushing ourselves and challenging ourselves enough. I can see. And I think that, that could be a, a solution to a point, but I mean, everything that we do is designed to make our lives easier. <laughs> And it needs to be the other way around. As an athlete, you know that for you to get better and to get stronger, you have to hurt yourself. You have to struggle and you have to you have to challenge yourself. And that's the only way that you're going to get better.
0: So is it because there's a goal maybe that the athletes have this? Um,
2: I don't know. They have I, a I,
0: race, they have a, a process, whereas people who are maybe lost or struggling just they don't have a direction so they don't know how to train themselves to achieve
1: i don't know i mean the, the direction to me is is the direction you're going like your your life is is what it is you, you're you're suffering and you probably don't even know it and it's mm-hmm. not until you change your world and change your experiences that you look back and realize holy shit i was suffering mm-hmm. my life terrible but if you can, if you can understand that your life could be better and you you move towards that, um, then that's the meaning, is is moving towards something better. I am I, not sure I totally understand it, but I don't know. It
0: makes sense. How do you communicate that to someone?
1: That's it, right? That's the key, and that's what I've been really fighting, finding myself drawn to, is how do I talk to. And I use athletes because that's who I talk to. How do sure. I get an athlete to to understand the that the, if you change if you're suffering and you, you give that suffering meaning that it's no longer suffering? It's easy to say. I can I can repeat that ten times. Sure. But put that athlete in a in a, a, a workout and make make them run to the breaking point and then ask them that question. And then get them to explore that, that idea. And it's a whole different thing. Like in order to understand suffering, you have to suffer. Mm -hmm. You have to go there. You can't sit on your couch, not suffering and understand suffering. I think that you have to actually, because other than that, it's just an idea. You, you have to, you have to be suffering to really deal with suffering. That's another, that's the same as central governor, Mm -hmm. which I'm huge I love the central governor. God, it's, it's the most amazing thing that there's this biological evolutionary safety mechanism in our brains that shuts our, da- our bodies down. I mean, that's cool. And then and how, how do you override the central governor? How do you slap him in the face and be like, dude, not today?
0: You'll love this or hate it. Is there a central governor? Because there have been some studies run where they found that the shutting down Was a choice.
1: Well, that's uh, okay. So that's there's multiple ideas here. I mean, first you have the gate control theory, Mm -hmm. which is the Ronald Melzack and Patrick Wall idea from 1965. I mean, that's been a long time, where they they theorize that you feel pain is in your head. Mm -hmm. You know, you you put your hand on a hot stove, and these electrical currents are sent to your spinal cord your central nervous system your spinal cord and your brain and it's there that that pain is realized and then right. that signal is sent back to your hand and then you feel and then you feel the sensation in your fingertips mm-hmm. right you can block that how do you block that um and the central governor theory is is very similar but i think it's a little more i don't want to say meso- metaphysical but You know, it's uh, to me, the central governor theory is more of this, this idea. I think there's something to, and central governor theory doesn't actually work with pain. It works with fatigue. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, But I think that you can, I think that the, that the pain is real. You feel pain when you become very fatigued so you know, you, you can associate the two.
0: Um, You mentioned that, um. Attempt at the two-hour marathon, and that's mm-hmm. almost a central governor slash choice moment, wasn't it? Right there, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, I whether think, I could think go that, beyond or not.
1: I would argue that the central governor makes you make a choice. Hmm. Okay. Like it, it, it increases that that discomfort to the point where you are forced to make a choice. Mm-hmm. And if it gets bad enough, you choose to stop. So yeah, it's a choice. I think, and I've said a million times, I don't even, I've been quoted as saying winning or losing is a choice. It's in, you choose to slow down or you choose not to slow down. Right. 99% of the time it's a choice because very few times have I seen athletes go to failure. True failure. Right. Like I did it once. I did it last year in the 400 where, you know, 300 meters, my legs just locked up. There was no it was like somebody put 80 pound concrete blocks on my feet and I couldn't move my legs. It wasn't, it wasn't, I wanted to, I was trying everything I could to get my legs mm-hmm. to move. And it was a, it was very difficult. Um,
0: but there was an iron man with that. Oh, I forgot her name. Julie um, Moss. Julie Moss. Thank you. That to me is probably the best example I could think of a failure of just mm-hmm shutting down i've ever seen
1: so when i got 44th at ironman hawaii as i was coming up to the finish line wendy ingraham and Mm -hmm. sean watch both amazing ironman athletes were crawling in front of me and if you watch the video you see wendy ingraham's legs give out and they lock up and she falls she collapses she doesn't it's not a choice it's it's a complete central nervous system failure. And then right next to her, Sean Welch did the exact same thing. And they were crawling. They were in the top 10. So they were crawling for place. <laughs> it was a race on their hands and knees for the last 20 meters. Um, so, yeah, so, it happens. It definitely happens.
0: How do you that train that that to is, get to that point? Because isn't that, in a way, almost an achievement that it, one absolutely. can push themselves to that point?
1: Well, I said before that the you know the ultimate goal would be to black out and collapse on the finish line, right? Yeah. Like, very few people can do that. It, it's it's like holding your breath. Hold your breath until you pass out. You can't. Well, you can. So very few people can. I know Matt Carpenter can. He's a runner. Um, has the world record for the high altitude marathon. He was able to do that, and I think that that's a lot of Central Governor because Central Governor. Um, to a certain degree is, is factors like heat and, and oxygen, both of which um, threaten cardiac muscle and brain function. So oxygen, right? Oxygen deprivation. If you go sit in, in a dry sauna, um, at a certain point, your brain becomes oxygen deprived and your heart starts to come under duress because there is so much blood being moved to the surface of your skin that the oxygen isn't getting to your brain. Your, your body takes, uh, uh there's a hierarchy of survival where, you know, you're in the situation and your body through evolution, fight or flight mechanism decides what, mm. where do we need to move this blood to save our life right now? Right. Okay. And it moves it first, first and foremost, it moves it away from your digestive tract mm. because if a saber tooth tiger jumps out, you don't need to eat,
2: right?
1: right? You need to run, and so you get the shot of adrenaline, your heart rate increases, your lungs expand, um, and your leg muscles activate. And and as that stress increases and increases, then um, and blood becomes less available, then the hierarchy continues on. And it'll go to, you know, eventually it'll happen to your legs. And you just, that's where you've experienced that failure. But um, yeah, I don't even know what I was talking about now. Oh, it's a hierarchy of what about shuts down.
0: What? No, that's cool. It was a hierarchy of what shuts down. So you're saying essentially that maybe that is the brain just saying, okay, you're not going to stop on your own. I'm stopping you now.
1: Yeah, there's more to it than that, but I think that that's a a big part of it. I mean, you start to – the brain will start to shut down motor units within a muscle. Um, you lose economy. You slow. Uh, it takes more effort to run the same speed, so your heart rate increases um, motor units are the individual fibers all the way down to the cellular level within a muscle um, sure. It'll start ticking those off shut it off shut it off, shut it off and running becomes harder because you're not using is the you're using a lower percentage of the, of the muscle mm-hmm. um, and that's where that's where the initial shutdown begins and that's fatigue right that central governor um, but but I've explored this I've worked hard to explore the central governor, And like I said before, is the only way to experience or to deal with suffering or the central governor or challenges or anything like this is to put yourself in that situation. Mm -hmm. And one of the best ways I've found is a dry sauna.
0: Yeah, you've mentioned that before. Is that because it's a safe way to go to failure, sort of?
1: It is. It's safe and it's also something that that doesn't happen immediately. So if you wanted to experience central governor and suffering by running a 400 meters, Mm -hmm. let's say. You have, you run, 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 and then about 200 meters in, you really start to hurt, and then you've got about 10 seconds to experience this, and it's not very much time, and it's not, it's sort of repeatable, but you're going to trash yourself if you try to do it again, so you, you stop, and you're like, oh, shit, that hurt, and then you rest, and you try it again, right? <laughs> that, that process is really pretty difficult, um, and it has a, a detrimental effect on you, but sitting in a sauna... And I've sat in a 200 degree sauna for an hour and just, you just sit there and it happens and you feel it happen very gradually and you get to just deal with it and you don't have to do anything. You just sit there (laughs) and, and, and it, there's a physiological response, but the, the thing that interests me the most is the psychological because you, and it's hard to describe, but you get to the point where it's borderline panic attack, and and also, you would do anything to get out of the sauna. Hmm. And I want to know what that is. And I've tried to find it, and it, it's hard to hard to understand. But your heart rate will go through the roof. I've sat in a sauna, and those times I've worn a heart rate monitor and seen my heart rate in the one sixties. You know,
2: hmm. <laughs>
1: that's that's up near threshold. <laughs> it's a pretty high heart rate, and you're not moving. You're just sitting still. Um, Sounds
0: like a gas chamber in the military.
1: Yeah, it is. It's something like that. It's a torture device. But you, you get these opportunities to experience different, different levels of suffering. And I, and I, I don't believe that it's physical. I, I, I you, you're physically not in pain. Mm-hmm. It's not your leg muscles aren't cramping, and there's no actual you know touching the hot stove type of thing going on. But you are, you're in pain. And and I've said before that is sitting in that sauna that last 15 minutes was harder than a 5k. Wow. It, it much harder. You just want, want nothing more than to get out right now. And, you, and if you don't, then you get to experience it. I think it's pretty cool.
0: There's a book by uh, Tony Horwitz, um, a voyage long and strange. And he explores, um, um, Aboriginal tribes in Canada and they use hot stones that and are covered like with a tent and it's essentially like a sauna. And they call those hot stones grandfathers. And they always say more grandfathers, more grandfathers. And they throw it in. They kind of sweat it out. And I'm wondering if what you're describing is almost a spiritual thing in some cultures.
1: I, yeah, I don't think, I don't know. The, the feeling wasn't, the feeling isn't good. <laughs> it becomes horrible, and it becomes terrible. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it's about the spiritual thing, because <laughs> it be it, it's it more like terror. It's, it's like terror. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. But you got to sit in for a long time, oh, and sure. it, it, and it, I mean, you can sit in there and get t- you can get tickled with it. You know, I I call it the central governor whispering in my ear. Mm-hmm. Where he's like, dude, you're you need to get out soon because this isn't good. Right. He's, you ignore him, you sit there, and then eventually he's like, Dude, really, this this ain't good. Your heart rate's coming up, your your brain isn't getting oxygen, your heart's starting to come under stress. You need to get out now. And eventually he'll be screaming at you and pushing you out the door. And you, you if you resist that, then it it's pretty profound, I think. So I don't know. No. I'm fascinated with that because I think it's 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 an area that I mean, have you ever heard of that?
0: Yeah, um, I have. And ironically, in that same book.
1: No, I mean, with with the idea of 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 that, that taking that suffering to a high level and and trying to deal with it and understand it and going to those places. OK, most people I have haven't. I'm a coward. <laughs> <laughs> but you if you read you can read any number of running books. And they oh, never sure. talk about that. They don't talk about any of this stuff. And why not? And it's because we don't understand it. We don't have this deep understanding of it. You've got PhD psychologists and psychiatrists who who can't answer that question. They can right. touch into it, maybe get close and have ideas of it. But ultimately it comes down to each individual and how they deal with it. That's why a psychiatrist would talk to you for multiple, multiple sessions and try to get an understanding of you. But to, you know, to be able to... If you could somehow teach that to to athletes, I think that's the next great horizon in how we'll break the two hour barrier. Well,
0: I have a cynical I mean, view about that. And you do? I do. It's kind of um, I hate to say it, but you can't monetize that. You know, you can sell a sneaker. You can sell hard. No, it's monitor. already
1: monetized though. Well,
0: that's what I'm saying. How do you? how do you explain it like you said you're getting really deep into the barely understandable explainable mm-hmm. and i do feel a lot of um the running community stuff is driven by marketing so like if i was, if,
1: if i was a coach and i was able to get an athlete to fully understand it and mm-hmm. supersede it and go beyond that and and do more than he was capable of i would be rich
0: yes I, I would argue that, um, yeah. you know, whatever you think of Alberto Salazar, I think he's one of those types who Absolutely. does.
1: I mean, his, is the proof's in the pudding with him.
0: And you know, uh, also, the, uh, that male, uh, triathlete coach who coaches a lot of women. I forget his name, Brett or Brent.
1: Oh, Brett
0: Sutton. Him.
1: I yeah, think he's I know one Brett and I, I've, I've got pages of his training and he's more, I, I disagree a little bit. I mean, he kind of touches into that. I've trained a lot with Siri Lindley, who's a world champion, Loretta Harrop. I mean, the list goes down the line of the number of people that I've trained with who are coached under Sutton. And I understand Sutton, but I I think that he has more of the egg break mentality where if you look at the list of of successes he has. It's huge. Mm -hmm. Unchallenged. He's the most successful triathlon coach in the world, but he also has more failures. Uh, He has. It's not failures like oh, I got third. It's failures like you never heard of this athlete because they were really good and then they just disappeared.
0: Ah. Uh, so he he broke them. Him, up.
1: Burns them out completely. So he'll have a, a training camp of twenty athletes, and he just oh god, he just hammers them. He tries to break them like the Navy SEALs. Uh, And there's three people who who make it.
0: Not and all everybody's three, David Goggins.
1: Yeah, and those three. They win Kona six times. They win the, the ITU world championships. They, they, they are the best that's ever been. And that's how it does it. So I disagree a little bit, but I mean, from the monetization idea, I mean, in a, in a weird, in an interesting way, I think the Kenyans, um, Kenyans specifically, not even Ethiopians, but the Kenyans are, are an example of, of that can touch into this idea a little bit. Um, a because they never learn their limits. They they're not taught their limits. Mm. <laughs> a, as a, as a Western kid, you know, you, you're you're pl- the limits are placed on you from an early age. Um, but also in 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 West Africa, it's sociological. It's monetized already. If you want to get if you want to be wealthy and not be a goat herder in Kenya, you run right and you become very good and you're you're set for life and that's it right. i mean that's that's their main sociological drive or i don't know if that's the right word but
0: no it makes sense it's the same way that um we have the same genetic profile here in the states as they do in jamaica why don't we have better <clears throat> sprinters than jamaica well who wants they join spr- the nfl
1: <laughs> yeah but who
0: wants to be a sprinter Right that's I mean who the,
1: name who won
0: the
1: <laughs> who won the 400 meters at the last olympics
0: I'm you not sure No no
1: I do who won the super bowl Right Yeah it's I mean from an early age you don't see kids looking and idolizing runners and in Kenya you do I mean Paul Tergat lives next door dude's an Olympian world record holder I mean I want to be like him Sure. In the U.S., it makes more money to go to school and get a job and sit in a desk 40 hours a week because you can make money. Absolutely. In Kenya, you make 60000 a year, you're, you're rich. In the U.S., yeah, you're middle
0: class. <laughs> exactly. And I think so, that, that factors.
1: Oh, it's, it's the factor. Because we have 330-some or whatever million people to choose from in our genetic pool. Yep. Iden, Kenya, has a couple thousand Mm-hmm. And they destroy us <laughs> across the board. They are better in every way in running. You know, uh, genetically, we should have the gene pool to find or to, we have athletes. The best runner in the world is probably working in a McDonald's right now.
2: Yeah, have heard cigarette. that theory. He
1: probably doesn't, even, doesn't even run. He's never run a day in his life. But genetically, at the pure genetic level, that dude's probably a 158 marathoner.
0: Could well be. You'll absolutely. never know. You'll never know. Sure. So,
1: yeah, I mean, that's the whole youth programs in East Germany and stuff wasn't it? Russia where they, you know, they identify these young children and then pull them out of school and push them. I mean, if you wanted to, wanted to find the best athletes, that's the only way to do it.
0: Right. But then they wouldn't necessarily um, have the desire built in. So that's something matter. that, Oh, it, it does i think matter when it gets to the very 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 bleeding edge
1: well yeah i mean it, but in in their eyes that's not that's not the thing they they want medals and and stuff and in the us it matters more what you you know it matters more what you want to do right we're we're allowed that that um, choice luxury <laughs> yeah in eastern russia you know if, if somebody gave you an out you take it whether you liked it or not Sure. <laughs> you know you don't say no i don't really feel like running okay then go live live in siberia the rest of your life go for it
0: so what questions frustrate you as a coach the questions frustrate me as a coach because i mean you get a lot of them between um your athletes oh. the podcast which yeah, driving tree
1: learn pretty quick i mean i think most people who hire me, know who I am and they understand a little bit how I operate. And so the questions that I get from my own athletes, nothing frustrates me. I love it all though. though, Well, no, I'll take that back. One question (laughs) that frustrates me is, is an, is an athlete with an injury and they're like, how do we, how do I either resolve this or continue to train with this injury? Because I don't know. I'm, I'm not, Mm. I'm not qualified for that. I'm not a doctor, I'm not a PT I have no experience medically and so those questions frustrate me because I can't help and I know and I recognize that limitation um, and I and I don't feel that it that I can actually go and educate myself at this point to to solve that problem. I can't go to med school I can't <laughs> no, I can't really do that. That frustrates me but the the, the questions that frustrate me, the most, or how many miles a week should I be running? <laughs> Your favorite that's answer crazy. depends. That's like some guy I've never, I don't even know anything about. He just asked me what size shoes should I wear? <laughs> I don't know. The ones that fit. That's what thats what you want to. But people need that magic bullet. They need that number. And this goes back a little bit to what I was talking about with the Kenyans, where they don't learn these limits. But here in the U.S., we have GPS watches and uh, and fancy training logs, and all this data that that we we have become reliant on, and we don't think for ourselves. We want a number. We want to be told what number is the right number.
0: Do you like and to it's train to time to mitigate that? Train by time, or two time to mitigate that. So instead of saying, no. "I want X miles uh, run for an hour,"
1: not so much anymore. I, most of the athletes, I mean, at first initially I will, um, and I do it more on the bike because a lot of trainers, a lot of training rides, like on an indoor trainer, mm-hmm. um, running is a little bit easier to go with the mileage. Um, but uh, there's athletes who don't want to use heart rate. There's athletes who don't want to use a Garmin and I'll switch over to that and I'll cater to that. And it depends a lot on what the athlete prefers, because it goes back again to, you know, if an athlete is enjoying what they're doing and they prefer it this way, then they're going to thrive. And I've coached enough athletes where I can I can coach any way. It doesn't matter how you want to train. I can do it Um, just from experience. But no, not not too much time. And I don't mean time. Time is also another data point, right? True. I mean, if you True. wanted to be pure about it, then don't use time, which is how I bike now. I, how I far don't do use. You run
0: until I'm done.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, but I use stuff, auto-regulatory stuff, where you look for these signs that your body is breaking down: um, loss of mechanics, um, loss in pace, increased effort those are signs that you're, you're approaching that edge of adequate stress and it's stress. It's not a number. 20 miles doesn't tell you how hard it was, right? Right. 20 miles to you and 20 miles to me is two totally different worlds. Um, and so, yeah, and 400 meters, go run 400 meters. <laughs> okay. Do it in 50 seconds or do it in <laughs> two minutes. Tell me that 400 right. is the same. It's not. So, um, your body reacts to stress. It, it's breakdown. It's, it's, that's it. Um, and you can, your body will tell you when it's done. Very obvious, blatant signs that, that if you go further, you're not going to get better. So, <clears throat> yeah, that's the one question probably that frustrates me the most.
0: So in this interview, which, what question do you wish I asked? Mm. (laughs) Hmm. I
2: don't know. I don't know
1: more stuff about parenthood. Cause I still, I I have just as many insecurities and, and struggles with parenthood as I do anything else. And I feel like I've figured out myself athletically, but I still struggle with fatherhood and I, and I don't, just because you would ask the question doesn't mean I can answer it. <laughs> but, sure. Yeah. I don't know. That my kids are everything. I'm a stay at home dad and I'm with them every day. So it, it's, it's very much at the forethought, you know, from the moment you wake up until the moment you go to bed, your kids are that they're everything everything else just kind of fits in
0: around them. <laughs> and your identity is now dad
1: absolutely it'll always be dad it'll be for the rest of my Mm -hmm. life I'll die a dad I won't die an athlete (laughs) I'll die an ex-dad or an ex-athlete but you know that'll be that'll be what what I am for the rest of my life
0: that's a pretty awesome awesome thing to be and it's a good point to stop this
1: all right that is good (laughs) except you didn't ask the question and you didn't answer mine
0: (laughs) which question am I missing (laughs) the parenting one. <laughs> wow. That's a whole nother like 2 hours though. Absolutely, and I would love to have you back if you're up for it. Anytime. Very cool. Now, where can people find you because you're kind of the stealth coach.
1: Yeah, and I keep it that way. So I'm not going <laughs> to say it, but I what I I joke that if you can find me for coaching, I'll probably take you on. <laughs> Although, I've got a waiting list right now that's pushed out about 4 months. So that's not true, but part of the, part of the challenge of getting me to coach you is to find me.
0: (laughs) But for now, people can check you out on endurance planet, right?
1: Yeah. Endurance planet. And yeah,
0: endurance planet. Excellent. Ask the coach. That's right. It's a segment of endurance planet. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much for coming on and I hope to talk with you again.
1: Yeah, we will. I appreciate you, uh,
0: you having me on for sure.